Redeemer's friends and family, I want to welcome you to church today. We're studying a book written by Dr. Luke, a physician in the first century, the most prolific author in the New Testament. Think about that for a second. The guy who wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else was a man of science, uh, at least first century science, a fascinating fact. He composed two books in the Bible, uh, the Gospel of Luke and then the sequel, the Book of Acts, which is our uh, our study in, uh, in, that we've been for the last couple of months now. And Acts describes, as we've learned, how the church exploded in the first century as it began to be communicated. Many, many lives, thousands of lives impacted by the gospel. Uh, Christianity began to spread. It started out kind of slow in Jerusalem, and then it just began to just go everywhere. And that hasn't stopped for 1,990 years straight. So this is an exciting uh, study uh, from that standpoint. Now, until chapter five, the Christians have experienced very little pushback and persecution. But that's going to change a bit starting in our text today. As we'll see, the heat gets turned up. We've got a lot of ground to cover. So if you do have a Bible, I invite you to uh, please open that with me to Acts chapter five, verse 12. We're going to kind of read in three different chunks today and then talk a little bit about what we can see and learn here in our passage. So let's get right to it. You can also take out those message notes as well when you came in. Hopefully you got one of those. Also, we're going to do communion. So you got a little communion pack. That'll be just so much happening today. Uh, every, you know, it's going to be a great, uh, it's going to be a great next 90 minutes. All right, let's, um, let's read. Now, Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Okay, so this is like a little bit of a progress report. Let's pause and kind of take stock for a second. You may recall the location, Solomon's Portico. Here's an artist's rendition of it. This is that covered walkway, breezeway uh, on the edge of the temple courtyard. You can see the temple there in the background. Luke tells us this is where the Christians were having church services. The epicenter of Judaism is right here. Also the epicenter of Christianity, kind of clashing all at the same time. A ton of ministry was going on here, yeah? Preaching and salvations, baptisms and healings, yeah? Uh, Luke says, like, miraculous power of God was on display. People were being healed and uh, demons were being cast out. And the result was multitudes of men and women were coming to Jesus. Again, the growth is exploding here. This was on top of the 10,000 plus people that had already come to Christ in these three or four months. And so this was just like mega church central. This is an incredible place to be. Some kept their distance, it says. Luke says, eh, you know, don't really want to join you. But Luke says, everyone, everyone held the Christians in high esteem. Even Peter's shadow passing over a sick person, a demon-possessed person, 
performed a miracle. So this, this, uh, this was an incredible time to be alive and be in Jerusalem and be a Christian. So the progress report, let's fill in some blanks now on your notes. Four things. People are being healed. Incredible miracle power. Outsiders are impressed, even though some are holding the church at arm's length. The church is growing organically. There's no transfer growth here, guys. No transfer growth. There's not like another church in town where the pastor torques off some Christians and they move over to the other church. That's not happening. There's only one church. And on top of that, Jerusalem, the city in the first century, archaeologists tell us, was about 55,000 in normal population, non, uh, uh, non-pilgrim population. And that means about a fourth of the city in three or four months had come to Christ. Explosive growth, 10 plus thousand and more added every day. And then the gospel, Luke says, is beginning to spread geographically for the first time. Do you guys remember at the beginning of Acts when Jesus gives the command to the church, to the Christians, take the gospel to the ends of the earth? Uh, start in Jerusalem, go to Judea, the surrounding areas, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That hasn't really happened yet. The, the gospel's just in Jerusalem, and so now we're seeing the towns like right outside Jerusalem city limits are starting to be reached. Now, the caveat on that is, well, the people are bringing their sick from those towns in. Uh, the, the apostles haven't gone. The people are starting to come to them, and so it's not quite what Jesus had in mind. But we're gonna, you know, we're not gonna be too critical because of uh, of the fact that they're gonna figure this out eventually, and and it's really cool. So this is a great progress. Now, with great progress comes great opposition to almost quote Spider Man. So let's let's keep reading in verse seventeen. Uh, let's see. Let me make sure I get the right. Okay, but 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 the high priest rose up. And all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, the apostles entered the temple at daybreak and began to preach. Now, When the high priest came to work that morning and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the Senate, uh, all the Senate of the people of Israel, and they sent to the prison to have the apostles brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison. And so they returned and reported. Uh, So here's the thing. We found the prison securely locked and and the guards were standing at the doors but when we opened the doors we found no one inside now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words they were greatly perplexed about them wondering what this would come to and someone came and told him look the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and they're teaching the people then the captain with the officers went and brought them but not by force for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Okay, so uh, let's stop there and, and comment now. This is, this is kind of a cool scenario for a lot of reasons. Uh, for one thing, the opposition is beginning 
to really surface in a way that it hasn't before. The high priest, Annas, is, has made his second attempt here to thwart the ministry of the apostles. You may recall the first attempt, which was in chapter four. Only Peter and John were arrested, but things are escalating now. Now all 12 of the apostles get rounded up and thrown into jail. And this is really indicating, again, this intensification of the pushback, and this is happening now throughout the writings of Luke. He sort of traces this path of escalating persecution, uh, and, and it, it kind of follows this continuum. So here's the, here's the kind of plot line there. Uh, it first starts with Jesus. Of course, in the book of Luke, the Gospels, Jesus is persecuted, he's killed. And then in Acts chapter four, as things progress, the lead apostles are thrown in prison. This would be Peter and John, do you remember this? Now in Acts chapter five, we see all 12 of the apostles uh, being persecuted. And then next, next chapter, the next couple chapters, we're gonna see a lay leader in the church named Stephen uh, become, uh, well, he becomes martyred. And then we see the persecution extend a little bit after that to all Christians. And so it started with the leader and then the leaders and then the lay leaders, and then everyone was in, was in the target of, of those who were wanting to stop our faith. And so, and so this, is, this is like interesting to me because no matter how bad it gets or who they go after, the gospel always prevails. It, the gospel always prevails. Turn to your neighbor and say, the gospel wins. The church will thrive and multiply and spread and expand. No matter how hard they try to squeeze us down, guys, it's going to keep going forward. And we see this not only here in Acts, but we see this even today in modern times currently. Now, Luke informs us of something interesting about the motivation of this, of this persecution. What's the word that he uses? The Sadducees, the leaders, they did this because why? They were what? Jealous. Jealousy was motivating this. Jealousy is this like insidious sin in the Bible. It's like an acid in your emotions. It's that like, it's that hatred and envy mixed in with like ill intent and ready to box. Uh, so that's there. But what, what were they jealous of? What were they jealous of? They were jealous of a couple of things. They had lost some stuff and they wanted to get it back. They had lost authority they had lost influence with the people, and of course they lost God's favor. These were things they used to have, the Sadducees. They used to have these things, but now they don't. The Sadducees, by the way, are like a denomination within Judaism. They're like, um, they're like there's different denominations, or they call them sects, S-E-C-T-S, sects, not sex, sex. Let's teach on sex today. Uh, <laughs> And, so, and so, so this is like a subset of the Jewish religion in the first century. And they lost these things, right? And where did it go? Where did, it, where did they lose it? Well, they lost it to the apostles and the Christians. The apostles are the ones that have authority, uh, spiritual authority. They have spiritual influence amongst the people. And of course, God's favor. These miracles are just a sure, uh, sure sign of this. And so the Jewish leaders then became jealous of the Christians because the Christians got what the Sadducees used to have, and now they don't have it because they rejected Jesus. Now, th this is true of like kind of anything, any group that loses power, 
or any person that loses something valuable like power or money or influence. You want to get that back. You want to get that back. And so this is about getting those things back. The Sadducees haven't lost everything yet. All right. They're still at this point the dominant Jewish uh, sect. They're the dominant like denomination, if you will, within Judaism. They control, for example, all religious life in Jerusalem. The Pharisees kind of controlled things in the rural areas. The, the Sadducees controlled things in Jerusalem, which meant they, they operate the temple. The Sadducees operated the temple. That also mean, meant that all the offerings and the tithe money went through the Sadducees' desks, uh, quite literally. And so they, they had power and money, and they also had political power. They, they sort of crossed over into not just religious life, but into civic life. It says, for one thing, they had uh, their own police force. They had Jewish cops. There's Jewish cops rolling around Jerusalem arresting people. They also had a public jail, and they also had a court system that could adjudicate public crimes even. And, and that's kind of a surprise because the Romans were the ones who were really in control civically and militarily, but they sort of subcontracted with the Sadducees, at least in Jerusalem. And so there was this category switch from religious area to civic area. And the reason that happened, we think, is because the Sadducees were paying off the Romans with some of that tithe money. And so that's how they got this control. So they have more to lose from this point going forward. They can lose that control. They can lose that cash cow, the money, and they can lose their political clout. And so they're threatened. They want to get back what they lost and they want to keep what they still have. And all of this, of course, is being threatened by a most unlikely group of men and women. I mean, just these are like... Peter, for example, he's a fisherman from Galilee. This would be like someone, a fisherman from Port Orford, all right? Most people don't even know where that is. Uh, but it's a beautiful town, right? The Galilee, Capernaum, beautiful place. And then the other 11 guys would be all, like, in our context, from South County, from Glendale, all right? That's where these guys would have been from. And so they're, they're the ones upending all of these systems. All of the all of the norms that the Sadducees had established and their grip over the people and money has evaporated. So something has to be done. They have to reassert their dominance and begin to do damage control here to protect their theology and protect their politics. But as we read, God ain't having none of that, right? He's not. He's, God sends an angel. This is technically an illegal jailbreak because... It's against what the governing authorities are saying. And, 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 and here's this interesting thing. I think Luke is, this is just, I think Luke is showing, this is me, I think this, he's showing a bit of his humor and ironical humor here. Why? Well, the Sadducees did not believe in angels, and the Sadducees did not believe in miracles, and the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection. And so God sends an angel that's not real to perform a miracle that doesn't happen and orders the apostles to preach in a resurrected Jesus, which isn't possible, according to the Sadducees' theological kind of 
points, right? And I think Luke is just like, <laughs> Nina, 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 Sadducees. Like, that's just me. Uh, this is what nerds think is funny in case you're just wanting to make a profile on what nerds are like. Okay, so <laughs> there's a lot of confusion here, and the guys get rearrested. Let's keep reading, verse 27. And when they had brought the rearrested guys, the apostles, in, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name that he, he wouldn't say the name of Jesus. So he's just like, this name, like, yeah, like just like in a derisive tone. That's how I picture it. We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. We must obey rather than... The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted Jesus at God's right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. But when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care about what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400, joined him He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed, and it came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them you might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then the apostles left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So here we see that the high priest, Annas, uh, charges the guys with two crimes. The first crime is they made evangelism illegal, and therefore the crime was they were breaking this little law. Not little law, this law. And then the second crime was the apostles were accusing the high priest of being guilty of Jesus' death, and this put a bad light on the high priest, and so that was a crime as well, apparently. So to answer these accusations, there's 12 of the apostles there. Who steps forward once again? The answer is Peter, okay? Uh, I'm just seeing if you're paying attention. Are you guys okay? Just crack a smile, okay? (laughs) We're good. Peter steps forward once again. He's like the spokesman of the group, and this is consistent, and he basically says, Okay, on the first charge, yes, we are guilty. We are guilty. You have said it's illegal for us to to, to talk about Jesus, 
but we're still preaching. And then he preaches in his defense, which is really brilliant. He says, that's right. Jesus was raised from the dead. And so we are preaching repentance and faith in his name and salvation in his name uh, alone. And the reason we're doing this, by the way, is we must obey God rather than men. And then the second charge. Well, well, yes, Peter says, you did kill him. You did kill him by hanging him on a tree, by crucifying him. But Father God raised Jesus from the dead, which is simply a fact of history. It is simply an empirical truth, and we're witnesses of it, and all we're doing, we're being empowered by the Spirit to tell others about this. And so all Peter was doing is he's admitting guilt, and he's admitting the truth, and he's like, yeah, I'm just spitting out facts here, as the young people say. Can I get a little amen from the middle schoolers here? Okay. <laughs> so this enrages the court, and they want to kill him, Peter, and the, they want to kill them all. They want to kill all 12 of the guys. Wow. And, and so what happens is this unlikely intervention takes place. This leader, unexpected leader, uh, not even a, a Sadducee. He's a Pharisee. He's a Pharisee, a man named Gamaliel. Gamaliel steps forward. Now, Gamaliel, let's talk about him for a second. He's actually a real person in history. Of course, Luke writes about him, but he shows up in extra biblical uh, history material, namely Josephus, who was a Jewish historian who wrote for the Romans uh, in the first century. So Josephus' material talks about Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel was kind of famous in the first century for being the grandson of, he'd be like Billy Graham's grandson. Gamaliel was the grandson of Hillel. Hillel, which was a famous Jewish teacher. Hillel sort of started the Pharisees, kind of organized the Pharisees and was an amazing teacher. But Gamaliel, in his own right, was a master of Jewish law. He was highly esteemed by his peers and tradition, this is tradition, this isn't Bible, this is tradition, is that Jesus and Gamaliel interacted when Jesus was a boy of 12. Remember Luke tells us that Jesus kind of escapes his parents for like a weekend and they can't find him. They're like, we lost the Savior. Like we, we don't know where the <laughs> Savior of the world is. And Jesus, they find him at the temple by himself, and tradition has it that Gamaliel and Jesus were interacting with each other. We don't know for sure that could have happened. From Christianity's perspective, Gamaliel is most famous for being the rabbi and the chief mentor of a guy named Saul, a.k.a. the Apostle Paul. Uh, this, was, uh, this was also in the scriptures, it's told us. Then there's a high probability that Gamaliel was pouring into Saul at this very time here in Acts 5. This is fascinating to me. This is fascinating. This is not, this is just my imagination. The following is my imagination. But I wonder if Saul was here in the city. He would not have been allowed into the council chambers, but maybe, maybe, my imagination, maybe Saul was waiting out in like the lobby and when Peter and the guys were beaten and then released. Maybe Peter and Saul bumped into each other and spilled all of, 
all false papers that he's holding for Gamaliel. And he's like, man, what happened here? And maybe they caught like each other's attention. I don't know, probably not, maybe so. And if it were, maybe the, the Chosen should put that in one of their episodes. Um, <laughs> they can have that for free. Gamaliel, though, what we do have in Scripture, now back to Scripture, is he's got a level-headed approach, the voice of wisdom, and nobody is killed this day. The apostles are beaten. They're forbidden once again to preach, and they're released. And as they leave the court, they're kind of high-fiving and hugging each other as they were counted worthy. They were counted worthy by God to suffer in the name of Jesus. And the passage then ends the way it began, with Jesus being preached and proclaimed every day throughout the entire city. So, so, so did the apostles, did they, did they start obeying the authority? No, it says every day, meaning that day, that very day, they went back out and started preaching in the name of Jesus. This is interesting. They disobeyed the government law. And so, okay, what I want to do now, I have 10 minutes and five seconds. I am going to talk to you a little bit about the Christian's perspective about government and laws and authority. Because a passage like Acts 5 brings up this topic, and the scriptures have something to say about how Christians interact with civil government and really all authority structures. So can we talk about this for a second? Can you sense that there is a minefield about to emerge? <laughs> so there's this paradigm that's being established for the relationship between Christians and governmental authority here in Acts 5, Acts 4, and in other places in the scripture. And there's really three parts to it. If you take all of these passages, there's three parts to it, and we have to cover all three parts. So let's do that. So part one is this. We, Christians, are to obey those in authority even when I don't like it or I don't like them and even when I don't agree with it or them. This is what the scripture teaches us. We are to obey those in authority. This can mean government. This can mean bosses. This can mean parents. This can mean coaches. It can mean teachers. This is authority in general. This is our disposition towards authority. The concept of authority, we read, is actually from God. Theologians call this the common grace of God. The common grace of God is those things that the Lord puts in place on planet Earth to help govern the affairs of humans so that in our sin nature, we don't reduce life down to like mobs and burning everything in sight. And so God has given this thing called authority to us. And government is part of this. The passages that are included on your notes, uh, if you see those notes, they are from Peter and Paul. Those passages tell us, guys, as Christians, we are to be subject to our governing authorities above us. Peter, remember, Peter's the guy who twice looks the governing authority in the face and says, we are to obey God and not man. Elsewhere in his epistle, 1 Peter he also says that we are commanded as believers to honor the emperor. That same guy. He also wrote that epistle when Nero was the emperor of Rome. Do you know who Nero was? 
He was an emperor in Rome. He was a crazy man. He was absolutely nuts. He was off his rocker. He was, he was, he was like a guy who, who, like, he saw things and he had hallucinations and he was just totally a whack job, right? And Peter knows this and he says, you're to honor the emperor. You're to honor Nero. Can you imagine that was hard for the Christians when they read that epistle when it was first given in the first century? So we don't have to like our leaders or we don't have to agree with our leaders. And in a democratic republic like the United States of America, we don't even have to vote for our leaders. But we are to honor our leaders and be subject to their governing authority. My personal political alignment doesn't determine my obedience as a Christian. Scripture, you know what else? On top of this, Scripture also commands us to pray for our leaders. This is a hard one, isn't it? This is a difficult doctrine. Let me give an example of one, one I struggle with. Every year, the following things happen to me. Every year. The first thing that happens is I look at the deer hunting season dates, and I mark them in my calendar, and I begin to make plans with my buddies to go up in the Callahans and go hunt deer. I have to, get a, I have to buy a tag. I have to buy a deer tag. I obey those dates, and I buy those tags or that tag, and I hunt only when it's illegal. Then the next thing happens. <laughs> or when it's legal. Crap. Crap, 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 crap. <laughs> I hunt only when it's legal. Oh my gosh, I might as well not even say this. I ruined it. I also said crap like seven times. Sorry. Sorry, everybody. Can I, just, can I just do this? All right, let me just read it. The next thing that happens, I don't see any deer. I don't see any deer for that month. Uh, they're all gone. They disappear, let alone any bucks. I don't see any bucks, right? Until the next thing that happens, the day after hunting season ends, I see a huge six-point buck 30 feet from my house, traipsing around in the woods, like shaking his booty at me. And he's smoking a little cigar blown in my face I don't like this law this is the law of the land I obey it even when my hillbilly neighbors don't alright <laughs> alright that's one that I don't like it's funny but it's true alright part two part two is scripture teaches us that there are limits to part one the obedience that I talked about, that scripture talks about, is neither blind nor is it absolute. Guys, there are clear examples in the Bible where the saints broke from what their governments were telling them. One of the most obvious examples is the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. Pharaoh, who was the emperor, passes this law that requires all the Hebrew baby boys to be thrown in the Nile and drowned. And who disobeys that law? The Hebrew women, the doulas, the midwives. They systematically disobey this evil law. They broke that law. Moses' parents also disobeyed that law. They couldn't obey the law. They broke the law. And so there are times when Christians will break those laws. And this leads us to part three. If an authority requires me to do what God prohibits or prohibits me from doing what God commands, then I must obey God. 
Peter's opening remark in, in, our, in our section in verse 29 of chapter 5 about obeying God rather than men is exactly consistent with the first trial in Acts chapter 4 verse 19. This is our faith, is that when we come up against a governmental command that requires me to do what God says don't do or don't do what God says do, then I obey God, not man. When God's authority clashes with man's authority, always choose God's authority, even when there's consequences. This is the scripture's teaching. This is applicable, especially when it comes to preaching the gospel. It's applicable in all of the commandments and prohibitions in scripture, but it's it's very applicable here in our case about preaching the gospel. God says, hey, apostles, Christians, preach the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth. But many governments in Acts, and then now, today, say to Christians, no, stop preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. It's illegal. So who do we obey? We obey God and not man. So the, the years of 2020, 2021, and 2022 come to mind when we study these passages. And yes, I'm just going to go here. <laughs> We study passages like Acts 5, and, and then we just kind of, in light of Acts 5, just look into the, the, the recent past, and we just kind of go, interesting. The government in America restricted big gatherings from taking place, which impacted churches like ours, as you know, right? This happened. It was a confusing time. It was an incredibly difficult time. And it was the worst time to start a new job as a pastor. It was actually the best time because it was just following God's lead. But it was hard. So I asked, we asked questions, the elders and I, the staff, was, is this religious persecution happening in America? Or is this a legitimate public health crisis? Or was it both? We know this, that governors in states like Oregon allowed casinos to stay open, but required churches to shut our doors. Do you remember this? And that happened until SCOTUS stepped in the Supreme Court of the United States and said, that's not allowed. Stop doing that, governors. And so the question from that was, are some of our secular governors using their power and using the pandemic to curtail our religious freedoms. But also, and, not or, and, there were people who really got sick. Some people died. We know, this is a fact, that in a church near here, where all cautions were ignored, COVID broke out several times and killed over a dozen older congregants. This happened. That's a true fact. What to do? What to do? So we stayed open at Redeemers, aside from two brief closures on weekends. We then ex expanded our online church ministry. We, we, we wanted to keep reaching people and building lives and keep preaching and teaching. And so we did this. We have cameras. We have hundreds still that join us online. We had thousands then that joined us online. Many of you used online church for a little while. Some of you even used online church or Zoom or, or FaceTime to, to keep meeting in your small groups. 
so that you could stay connected to your community and do Bible study midweek. To my knowledge, no one died from Redeemer's sourced COVID exposure. Thank you, Jesus. For me personally, I've never experienced anything like the last three years. I speak for everyone. For me, I found it was impossible to rely on news sources because they seemed tainted, everyone, with a political agenda. One time I received an email from a local doctor whom I never got to meet because he wouldn't meet with me in person and he wouldn't come to church in person. He demanded that I preach from this pulpit that everyone at Redeemers be vaccinated because getting the vaccine was loving your neighbor as yourself. Not going to do that. Not going to do that, am I? Also, I had other emails demanding that I preach not to be vaccinated because getting the vaccine was taking the mark of the beast. I think Hebrews has something to say about avoiding strange doctrines. Um, Didn't do that either. Three times, we were anonymously turned into OSHA for allegedly violating mask rules. We we think someone was coming in and, and turning me in Uh, and then we would get letters threatening to shut our church down three times. Boy, that was a fun time. I really had a great time my first three years here. (laughs) My friends, I don't bring this up to stir up old wounds. I bring this up because our passage speaks about when and when not to obey the government, and what we just went through, I think, is the closest we've ever come to Acts 5 in American history. There was a big difference, though, and we have to say this. We have to just be, we have to be truthful with the facts. The big difference between Acts 5 and the pandemic stuff was we never were prohibited from preaching the gospel. And we have to take note of that. And so, what did we do? This is how we powered through the pandemic, is that we met in person and online, and we preached the gospel. And I was able to present the gospel message more times in those two and a half years than I ever have in the frequency standpoint in my ministry career. And so this, my friends, is what we did and what we will continue to do. We will, yes. We will follow Peter's example And we will continue to proclaim Jesus and we will talk about his resurrection and we will talk about the benefits of the salvation that Christ, our leader and savior, offers us. We will talk about forgiveness. We will talk about receiving forgiveness and giving forgiveness and mercy and redemption. And we'll talk about sanctification and walking this thing out and loving our neighbor as ourself. We will love our God uh, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We will talk about these things and preach about these things and proclaim the gospel, the full gospel, all the benefits of Christ. And we won't stop. We will keep doing this while we have lungs in our breath. We will continue to proclaim the gospel and the love of Jesus even when and if it gets difficult in the future from a political standpoint to do so. We're going to keep going. The same day that the apostles were released, they kept on preaching. Verse 42, let me show it to you again. And every day in the temple and from house to house, so publicly and in their small groups, that's what that means. Publicly in Solomon's portico and also from house to house, home to home, oikos to oikos is the word. They did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. And some people tell me, some people believe this and I, nah, okay, that it may get hard again in America. 
in a future political climate. It may get more difficult. And guys, if it does, when it does, what we're going to do is we're going to follow the Bible and we're going to obey God and not man. 